Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Last weekend, the box office report for new releases looked very different. It was glaringly empty. As with so much of the world, the pandemic has left its mark on film. And for now, new theatrical releases are in a kind of holding pattern. Our latest guest on the Film Comment Podcast at Home series is regular contributor Nick Pinkerton. And he's been wondering how this cinematic break is affecting film culture and the very idea of contemporary cinema. Nick has also been watching a ton of movies, everything from Bunuel's Simon of the Desert to Virtuosity. For this episode, I and my colleague Devika Girish spoke with Nick about his voracious viewing and what isolation means for all of us as moviegoers with no place to go. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is our daily edition of the podcast, our at-home series, keeping you company through the seemingly rather long months of um, difficult times. Anytime I begin this podcast, it's a little hard to summarize what's what's happening because I don't want to come off as too, too light-hearted um, um, at all. But at the very least, what we can do is take our minds off things, keep each other company talking about movies. And we've been having a nice series, basically asking people to just dump, do a data dump of everything they've been watching. Um, and that's been quite entertaining. And today, um, my special guest, well, let's start with actually our... our the unspecial also, guest. The unspecial. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I find a new way to make that inelegant each time. Uh, Devika, our assistant editor at Film Comet, um, and our, our person in the in the in the spotlight, our in the hot seat for today is uh, Nick Pinkerton, uh, film critic at large, uh, and the beneficiary of the new wildly popular NickPinkerton.substack.com, which uh, has really been dominating the conversation over the last uh, week or so. Yes, I encourage everyone to sign up. I've I've already gotten a copy and can vouch vouch for it. Um, As can I. So definitely seek that out. We'll include a link. On, it's, de- on it's definitely page. not just a hasty cash grab before everything <laughs> shuts down. I want to I want to be very very clear about this. This is not a shell game I'm playing here, folks. To be <laughs> HQ content on the regs. <laughs> Uh, yes, for sure, and, and it'll it'll be. I think it'll be a touchstone for for all of us, um, broadcasting from from the wilderness, wilderness um, that we all share now. So, Nick, what have you been what have you been up to? Well, first of all, I want to say that this is a first for me on the Film Comment Podcast. In that, I'm recording this podcast with a beautiful tuxedo cat of about 11.5 pounds in my lap. 
Oh. <laughs> so if you're familiar with the uh, Celestial Seasonings Sleepy Time Tea uh, artwork. Yeah. The picture bear, that. The little, picture the bear, that. The... bear in rocking chair, blazing hearth. I think uh, he's can, got... Can you bring him when we start doing these in person after all this is over? This doesn't have to, to be an at-home thing. Yeah, I would yeah. love to. Yeah. Well, someone was just telling me that uh, there's a cat chat going on um, mm-hmm. where, where where people Skype in with cats and or kids Skype in with cats, which sounds like a recipe for, well, a, a fun time, actually. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's I'm spending a lot of time with my my two cats as well. Wait, they, uh, Nick Pinkerton, yes. what's your cat's name? Uh, Walter, uh, after Mathau, not Benjamin. Uh, <laughs> okay. I also have to be very clear about that. Um, really a beaut. He's uh, yeah. You know, obviously, this is what we're doing this podcast for. So I'll just you know hold hold court <laughs> on the subject of my cat for the next uh, sixty minutes, give or take. Now we're here yeah. to talk about the movies. <laughs> the movies, yeah. The only thing. Standing between us and chaos, of course, yeah. um, that and sufficient supplies of medical equipment, etc. Um, but uh, so, Nick, you've you've actually this brings up an interesting issue that I think has come up over the course of these podcasts, which is how much do we connect what we're viewing with the outside world? How much do we want to? Um, I, I've I've kind of been getting the sense that um, that's that's something you almost want to avoid, you uh, Nick. You personally just... Well, it's not it's not that per se, but it's the hazard I find of this as somebody who writes and as somebody who's tried to kind of keep at least some differential between uh, writing in public forums and one's private existence hmm. is that the public has all but disappeared at this point hmm. and. You know, now we are fireside chatting here. Now I am talking about my cat and things like this. Uh, There's this sort of overwhelming temptation to make things personal to a degree that I would not be like pre-inclined to do because there's this starvation for contact and uh, that starvation can then I think like pop up in very strange ways and uh, oversharing and so on and so forth. So it's not uh, a hesitation to connect things to current events, uh, whether or not you're trying to, the world always is going to impose itself on you. Um, But I don't know, trying to maintain a modicum of privacy. (laughs) No, that's a, that's a good point. And especially with everyone, you know, working from home and uh, adapting to new, I guess, modes of work and professional life. That, that is something to, to keep in mind is it, it, the lines are far too easy to blur right now. And mm-hmm. I guess something with uh, crises like these, you know, it is something that sort of permeates everything it's like this big universal (laughs) the coronavirus and so um i think that yeah that's uh, i get where you're coming from that it's kind of uh having to 
reorganize all of the spaces in our lives and and it's good to remember to still hold something sacred and and know how to separate uh different parts of your lives yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it's some. It's 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 obviously a. It just also kind of an aggravation or or an extreme of some things that were already happening in terms of blurring. The, the oh, absolutely, work, yeah, work yeah. Life balance with you know even just with cell phones and availability in that sense. Um, and uh, but uh, I, I guess to a certain extent that um, the 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 writing life is 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 often a a. It's sort of twenty four seven endeavor in terms of occupying one's one's mind to a certain extent. Yeah, but I mean, the interesting thing, of course, is and this. I mean, a week or so ago, you saw a great deal of this going around. Is people who are work from homers, uh, you know, sharing tips, uh, so on and so <laughs> forth. And what sort of went undiscussed in that is, you know, it's not terribly difficult to work from home. In fact, I find it quite amenable, but it's only pleasant when you have at end of day the prospect of getting the fuck out of your apartment. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, even as somebody who's like fairly uh, well acquainted with the life as it was, uh, like this is a whole different ball game. That being said, it's been... You know, not entirely unpleasant. And uh, as you know, Nick, I have been watching a lot of motion pictures. Yes, you have. I'm curious. Has there been? What's been your your um? What's been the the, the planning, or has it been each day you kind of see what your needs are for the day, or are you working through a particular? It looks like a few of these I maybe recognize from the anthology film archive. Correct, yeah. So I was finishing up a piece for Rhizome, which uh, should hit the virtual stands uh, sometime in the next week about the Screen Slate curated 1995, the year the internet broke series. Uh, So I was revisiting Robert Longo's Johnny Mnemonic, uh, which I had last seen theatrically with my father uh, when I was 14 years old. Uh, and Brett Leonard's virtuosity. Uh, Brett Leonard, of course, the helmer of uh, the lawnmower man and the uh, auteur of virtual reality uh, par excellence, which I had never seen. Um, Mm. Otherwise, it's been, as you say, just kind of grabbing things here and there, digging into a couple of uh series views for example cracking open criterion's lovely showa era godzilla box and viewing and reviewing out of that um you know just kind of mm-hmm. catch as catch can i want to yeah. note that the last film that i saw projected on 35 millimeter in a movie theater was peter george's surf nazis must die <laughs> where um, was that this was at Nighthawk. This was part of the wonderful screening series, The Deuce, that they do at uh, Nighthawk. And oh, this yeah. was the night that anthology announced its shutdown. This was when uh, already the uh, sort of shaming for not uh, self-quarantining was starting to <laughs> ramp up significantly in social media. Uh, but I was just like, man... 
I, I got to go out and see surf Nazis must die. Like <laughs> if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go, I'm going to go out watching, uh, this, you know, trauma, trauma film, uh, with a fantastic original soundtrack courtesy Joe McCallum, incidentally. Um, yeah. and since then, uh, I've been, I've been on lockdown. Yeah. Streaming discs. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to get out to like, the Ulrich Ottinger series that was meant to start uh, at Metrograph. They did, I think, one evening of Ulrich right. Ottinger films before they finally uh, closed the doors. Um, but yeah, uh, I've been uh, pretty much Howard Hughes it up ever <laughs> since then. What's What's it been like watching those those you know early mid internet? movies in, in this kind of climate because so many of them are imagining you know in these sometimes i don't know a bit kind of corny kind of ways you know expanding your mind and, and kind of opening out in, in, in into mm-hmm. what are often these also these early like 3d um graphics um i don't know yeah 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 i mean it, it's it's very funny and hokey and a little charming the way that you know it's 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 a obsolescent term but the way that like surfing the internet is envisaged in a lot of these movies is it's like this very immersive physical experience where you're flying headlong magic carpet ride (laughs) style over this like fabulous uh grid work uh zooming from one you know file to the next or whatever um Uh and in point of fact what would become abundantly clear is that you know ultimately using the internet using a home computer is a pretty sedentary activity and it's quite difficult to like wring anything (laughs) cinematic out of it um but at this point there's like a low enough comprehension i think on the part of rank and file moviegoers as to what using a computer is that you can still sort of jazz it up a little bit. I wanted to note that, uh, and I actually use this graphic on my, uh, much, much discussed Substack, but the opening crawl of Johnny Mnemonic, which is the, f- which was meant to play at anthology the night that they shut down the opening crawl of this, uh, uh, William Gibson adaptation from a, like 1981 William Gibson short story goes second decade of the 21st century corporations rule the world is threatened by a new plague NAS nerve attenuation syndrome fatal epidemic its cause and cure unknown the corporations are opposed by the low techs a resistant movement risen from the streets so right you know, on time Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> as goofy as these things are, so I mean, how has is... your uh, your uh, attempt to not current uh, connect movies to current events been going? It's not that precisely. It's it's the <laughs> fact it's 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 not that it's not that at all. It's more a matter of well, there is no contemporary cinema right now. There are mm. no festivals per se. I mean, you can put shit online, but it's clearly not the same. There are no cinemas running. So for the first time in memory, there's no contemporary cinema to talk about. There are no events. (laughs) Um, And the idea of detaching from 
contemporaneousness has always been appealing. Now it's uh, enforced practically. Like history is all we have. (laughs) Yeah. At one and the same time, like, as I mentioned, I'm rewatching, you know, the cream of mid sixties, Ishiro Honda Godzilla films. And, you know, what are these films at base about, or at least what is the sort of uh, motivating factor in all of them? It's economic and environmental catastrophe being brought, uh, brought uh, to bear, uh, being brought into the world due to the short-sightedness, cupidity, wastefulness, stupidity of humanity. Um, so, uh, I, you know, Ghidorah, yeah. the three-headed monster, uh, though it, you know, maybe isn't the most highbrow of titles, seems stingingly uh, relevant at the moment if, you know, you want to bring that criterion to bear. Right. Um, right. Well, it's also interesting because they, they, those movies – they're also connecting back to some kind of um, almost Western in, in, induced original sin of, 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 I don't know, I don't know, interference at, in, at the close of World War II, right? Or, or <laughs> somehow there's like this atomic seed that's planted. Um, I haven't, I haven't, I don't, I'm not familiar with all those movies, but that there's something there as well. And yeah. No, I, I've always been really touched by the sort of fundamental bad taste at the uh at the heart of the like Godzilla concept because you know it is absolutely so completely plugged into uh national trauma mm-hmm. specifically with regards to the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but it also is reflective of a refreshing lack of self-seriousness about that national trauma. <laughs> uh, the, the equivalent I always think of is like, what if in like 2010, because I think about 10 years separate the end of World War II uh, to, <laughs> from the first Godzilla film, like what if in 2010, somebody in the US had made a movie where the World Trade Center has come down and then a big fucking monster comes out of like the uh, like footprint of the WTC. It would be thought in shockingly bad taste. Um, yeah. And you know maybe it is, but the full ability with which the Japanese pop folklore industry is able to like reprocess this into something both thrilling and. Uh, a bit camp at times is I don't know, very touching to me on some levels. Yeah. It's kind of like this pop exorcism uh, that, yeah. that happens. Um, I, I mean, it's, I mean, it's something there's you think such, about. There's such great films. Like I'm, I'm having the time of my life. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Apocalypse What's... notwithstanding. Is, is Ghidorah your, your kind of favorite. Oh discovery? no. Mothra. Mothra by a country mile. No, I mean, yeah. none of these are discoveries because film forum. Yeah. God, I don't know how long ago, probably 15 years ago had a pretty uh, thorough, I guess it was just Ishiro Honda uh, series. I can't remember if it was Ishiro Honda, Ishiro Honda specifically, or like Kaiju generally. Uh, but between a very Kaiju heavy childhood and that I, seen everything at one time or another but i'm revisiting for 
the first time in a while. But Mothra is the absolute you know best of the kaiju. If only because she she has as her avatar the delightful peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 something you th- I, I sometimes think about now. I mean, you you were saying just now that there is no contemporary cinema as such because there's no theatrical culture going on. So it's it's hard even to speculate how this this you know this situation will be reflected in movies or be dealt with in in some ways. And then we haven't even gotten to I don't know any of a number of other shoes haven't even dropped in terms of the depression like circumstances mm. that are going to follow mm. and 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 you don't have the United States isolation that kind of saw it through um, other grim periods like World War II ended up being a you know it's classic Hollywood basically um, and and World War One is also interesting in terms of extinguishing certain national cinemas at the time um, but yeah now I think we're still just waiting to see but uh, I, yeah. I think you brought up a really good point too when you said there's no contemporary cinema and there's no events because I think people are trying to sort of keep it going, keep the show running through all these mm-hmm. online means and festivals and streaming. But when everything is just part of the internet, this kind of uh, indiscriminate glut that you know feels so like atemporal, it just exists there in the same form. Um, it is hard to kind of single it out, both as contemporary, but also as something like distinctive, like... Uh, uh, cinema like as something unto itself um yeah it's yeah. it has served to underline for me not that there was ever much doubt in my mind uh the singularity of theatrical movie going and the <laughs> preciousness of it again this is not something i'd ever really struggled with uh but the magnitude of the enormous loss potentially faced uh and this is one loss among very many others potentially faced but it happens to be my bailiwick and this happens to be the film comment podcast so we'll talk about (laughs) that um the enormity of what is being threatened it has become very 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 evident to me in a way that uh perhaps it had not been previous even as somebody who's kind of predisposed to uh venerate that theatrical movie going experience yeah i mean it's you know there's definitely a worry that in a in a way it's the you know an, a, a pandemic it's almost like it afflicts like other ecosystems you know uh, like uh, you know it's i don't know how it affects a lot of independent theater owners across the country which you know are, are all maintaining contemporary film film culture and and, and in in the uh, so yeah, it's it is a there is a fragility you become aware of, and and you become even more aware as well of just how much you need a community, and how self reliant you end up having having to be in some ways, um, which is daunting. Right, but also, I mean, for me, like what what I wasn't thinking about before we started talking about this right now is you know just um, 
also kind of history and 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 being able to have these different experiences and have them exist as something individual in time now i'm really kind of having this moment of oh my god everything's just out there in the in the void of the internet and how will we just remember this time as as, as an that? Old <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've been um I've been writing for some time now uh a long piece on Simon Lang's Goodbye Dragon Inn. So of course this is going to predispose me to thinking about the uh theatrical movie going experience and the preciousness uniqueness of that experience uh the degree to which uh cinema so often denied um this distinction is in some ways, in fact, a site-specific medium. And in the course of this, I found myself in writing about Sai as someone who is constantly talking about, but moreover, uh, impressing through his films this idea of wanting to slow the pace of contemporary existence. I found myself... Uh, going to a quote from, of all people, the uh, fellow who I was just goofing on, Walter Benjamin, from uh, the notes of his 1940 on the concept of history, in which Benjamin uh, writes that Marx says that revolutions are the locomotive of world history, but perhaps it is quite otherwise. Perhaps revolutions are an attempt by the passengers on this train, namely the human race, to activate the emergency brake. And, and this is the pleasant flip side of what is otherwise a absolutely atrocious situation, is I do have the feeling that I'm experiencing for the only time in my adult life, the activation of an emergency break, everything just fucking stopping. And an actual as, paradigm shift yeah, of some kind. Yeah. And as horrifying as it is on so many levels, and I don't want to for a second suggest that I don't live in constant terror of the potential cataclysmic results of this nevertheless there is a certain enormous relief in just everything stopping for once yeah, yeah and the chance to examine through that stoppage what life with those systems has been stopping uh, and you looking know. yeah <laughs> pick up your copy of the new issue of film comment featuring an extensive interview with kelly reichardt along with an essay on her latest first cow also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Jay Hoberman on Thomas Heise's essay film Heimat is a Space in Time, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Plus, Spike Lee's trusted costume designer Ruthie Carter, Isabel Huppert in Lulu, George Romero's Lost Film, and much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. You also realize what are the essentials, um, how do things actually work, what are actually necessary um, things, and what, yeah, what are what about the current mechanisms that we rely upon? What are the sacrifices that they demand of us? I kind of want to talk about Surf Nazis Must Die. <laughs> <laughs>
I maybe we can talk about one of the uh, movies that other some other one of the movies that you saw. I think um, we were just wondering about um, Simon of the Desert and and how how you got to. I that. mean, that was totally fortuitous. I just had like an hour to kill, and I was thinking of like <laughs> you know enjoyable <laughs> movies that that will take up less than that amount of time. I was like, oh, you know, I'll throw on Simon of the Desert. Not thinking for a second it was, you know, the sort of definitive self-quarantining movie. Uh, <laughs> not for a second thinking about this. And That thought didn't even cross your mind? Didn't even cross my mind. And then, of course, you start thinking about, you know, much of the Boonwell filmography. Uh, hmm. To back it up briefly, Simon of the Desert... Uh, which is about 45 minute film from 1965 uh, has some elements of the retelling of the story of the fifth century uh, Syrian saint, Simon Stylites, uh, who lived for almost 40 years on the top of a column. Um, but, you know, not only is this, uh, you know, a fantastic examination of ascetic uh, self-denial in action, but then you start thinking, of course, about like the Boonwell filmography as a whole uh, and how many of the films have to do with either a group in isolation, uh, Exterminating Angel, right. uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, or individual in isolation uh simon of the desert of course also his robinson crusoe so you know merely or or even in a less exaggerated fashion i mean what is a what is diary of a chambermaid concerned with if not that the degree to which to obtain a certain degree of wealth and to keep up a certain uh, lifestyle is to immure yourself in that lifestyle and to be frozen away from the world at large. So uh, not even having really given the matter much thought, I kind of backed into the fact that like Boonwell is uh, very apropos right now. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is in, in, intriguing and almost uh, somehow that he creates and that there that 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 becomes a surreal effect to to do that um but then you start to wonder how surreal is it i don't know i've always wondered about what the definition of surrealism is in terms of why we consider certain juxtapositions or certain um maneuvers uh yeah. artistic sur surreal well i mean you think also of you know the polanski uh apartment films mm -hmm. which I mean, what is, what is repulsion if not you spend a certain amount of time wrapped up in yourself and things, your, your reality starts to bend a little bit. And I'm certain that many people listening to the sound of my voice and indeed like myself have already had this experience. Like you spend a fair amount of time in your own company, things get pretty fucking weird pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I did wonder uh, watching Simon of the Desert. Uh, you know, I, I wondered a little bit about faith and whether you know, if I were more religious, would something like a quarantine be easier to just endure? 
because you say mm. it's like spending time with yourself, but really he's spending time with God, you know. Mm. Uh, and, <laughs> but I, I I do mean like this kind of I don't know I just sound kind of like puritanical now, but puritanical. Um, I I don't know I I was just about to say you know it does kind of uh, I guess it helps to be able to displace your existential worries onto something else. Well, I mean, it, if we take Boonwell at his word that he is a non-believer, and I don't have a great deal of difficulty uh, <laughs> in doing that, given the fact that the Milky Way contains a scene where the Pope goes before a firing squad, like <laughs> we have to then assume that Boonwell's Simon of the Desert, when speaking to God, is speaking to himself. Then at one and the same yeah. time, like Boonwell... Boonwell belongs to this generation of kind of specifically lapsed Catholic European directors who, by virtue of, you know, Boonwell had a Jesuitical education, by virtue of growing up completely within the church, even their heresies are a species of religious art, if that makes sense. Right. Mm. Like, Boonwell had a grasp of Christian theology, and again, like, the Milky Way is the ultimate expression of this that, like, I think goes well beyond uh, your average uh, lay priest. Like, the, the man knew his scripture backwards, forwards, and upside down, uh, so even as heretical as the works are, they have this this incredible focus and grasp on the matters at hand, uh, which you know takes them into the realm of like ex- exegesis. Um, yeah, if you're if you're an, an, an artist working, um, you, if you just treat the Bible as literature, uh, I mean, it's a pretty insane and fertile text <laughs> um, to bob and weave within, um, and and also just using its place in society uh, as, as well as there's a lot. Um, well, I mean, I, in the case of Boone, well, again, like even to say that it's being used as literature, I, the man obviously had a quite complex relationship with the church, like in his adult life, late in life, a, a significant part of his circle of acquaintance was made up by people who wore the cloth. Like he had many, many fairly close friendships with priests, uh, bishops, etc. So, I uh, you know, suffice it to say, it's mighty complicated. In yeah. the case, well, <laughs> yeah. It's a big workaround to saying again, like if we if we take the man at his word, his Simon of the Desert is running an internal monologue with uh, nobody at the other end of the line. <laughs> Right, but if you believed that there was someone at the other end of the line, oh uh, yeah, maybe life know, would be uh, easier. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm happy as a clam. <laughs> <laughs> I know the big for guy instance, is looking out for me. A clam in a clam in an ocean of dread. Just uh, <laughs> yeah. I well, mean, yeah, imagine that... what we seem like to the people we share our homes with right now. The cats. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you know the other spirits, and maybe you I just can, need I to believe, that, Nick. Uh, 
<laughs> I can reveal that uh, filmmaker and occasional film comment contributor Sierra Pettengill lives uh, two floors up and is my quarantine buddy. So, you know, once every three days, a slightly tweaked and wild-eyed Sierra appears <laughs> at my door. But that's about the extent of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's, that is another, but I, I guess, Devin, you're talking also about cinema as a kind of place of sp some sort of spiritual reflection or reevaluation. I don't know if that's sort of what you're, you're gesturing towards. Um, sort of. It's also that uh, obviously the film is a satire and, um, uh, and kind of, you know, a satire of the central character's uh, ascetic lifestyle, but somehow the satire isn't working for me right now um mm. Mm. you know and and the critique it, it it seems you know the film like ends with this escape into this ecstatic urban life right and that being something that is not possible right now it just kind of changes the shape of the film for me and and so just just kind of reimagining that sort of a paradigm when when there there are these uh, material uh, dangers to to a social to what you might uh, describe as like a mortal life i guess but but even that uh, there's this hard jump in the film in which uh the tempting uh satan played by sylvia pinal uh transports simon from his desert exile to a nightclub supposedly in uh, 1960s Manhattan. And there's like right. this very funny, like uh, instrumental rock band on stage. And uh, it's like three guitars. It's like a really weirdly composed band. <laughs> um, and, uh, but even this like ostensibly like ecstatic presence, like uh, they're dancing uh, to a, uh, they're they're doing this uh, new hot dance that's called the radioactive flesh. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of it. Yeah, I'm they're doing like it right now. Around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every, everybody should come out of this uh, really well up on how to do the radioactive flesh. <laughs> right. Flesh. Yeah. Well, have you watched anything that's been kind of a, a relief from things beyond therapy? I see here. Oh, Beyond Therapy? That's far from a relief. I mean, have you seen the film? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was thinking of another movie. We can <laughs> I just realized what Beyond Therapy is. <laughs> it's, so, it's so shrill and hectoring and unpleasant. I mean, I absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah, among other things, like, uh, like uh, being shut up for a while... Uh, really develops like a galaxy brain, I think like, and you know, among the, among the positions uh, that I've been considering taking are like, yeah, actually, uh, you know, eighties Altman, that's the good shit. Like seventies stuff. He's still kind of working things out, but uh, <laughs> it's not till you get to like health and Popeye that you really start getting interesting films. I, you know, I used to like uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. <laughs> <laughs> in undergrad yeah that shit's okay but eventually you got to get into beyond therapy so what's the argument for 80s altman <laughs> i just made it man it's Shrill. just uh, 
the well, argument no, is uh, maybe it's not so bad. No, 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 no. It's not that. It's just it's just like very much like without a parachute filmmaking. It's like the worst has happened. You know, the Lionsgate's been sold. The house in Malibu's gone. The BMW's auctioned off, and now it's just you know total total uh, breaks off absolute madman filmmaking another very good isolation film uh and i'll have a piece on this up uh soon at criterion is uh secret honor Mm -hmm. the uh you know uh philip baker hall is richard nixon uh alone in his new jersey bunker just like bouncing off the walls which is you know what i'm trying to model my uh, quarantine style <laughs> after you have a couple of monitors there <laughs> yeah 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 eduardo erase all that well there does does come a point where it's now i don't know somehow i come back to like how does anything seem what can we save i i, I I start to wonder if the idea of privacy is also like, how can I make art somehow private from the omnipresent scourge of, 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 I don't know, this, this current situation. Do you know what I mean? Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. Well, just the sense. Uh, expand. You know, <laughs> well, just the sense On that it seems we seem, you know, we, we, we return just naturally, quite naturally and understandably to how things are connecting with our current experience. Mm. Um, I mean, is, is that something that we, we should resist? I mean, to, to a certain extent, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, how can you? Yeah, I guess you, you can't. And, it, and it's probably cathartic to, to think about those things in a certain way, but then, you know, also just flashing back to some of the movies that would come out in the, in the depression or something like the screwball, screwball comedy, um, I mean, I guess there's an aspect to its anarchy that reflects something about the world and the topsy turviness and the class, stark class divisions and things. But also, there's an escapism there to to the I don't know, to the lunacy. I mean, the 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 experience that I've had, and I'd be interested to hear. I, I, I my impression is that I'm not alone in this. Is that the sensory deprivation that one experiences has the effect of essentially turning every movie into an airplane movie. Uh, And what I mean by Mm. that is I've talked to a lot of people about this. Uh, I, I don't know what the science is, but I know that I am, and I know that I've talked to a lot of other people who are much more emotionally vulnerable to things watched on airplanes. It has something to do with the air. It has something to do, I'm sure, with the fact that usually you're behind on your sleep. I don't know, but uh, I find that I'm experiencing that with practically everything now, which is to say things are as they always were, but more so. Yeah. Yeah, I think I said I, this I, on a podcast before that I cry at every movie that I watch on a plane. So that's not just me. No, yeah. I, I had this conversation a while back with my buddy Andy Lampert, and I quote this all the time because it cracks me up. Uh, but he was talking about watching Spielberg's uh, Lincoln on a plane. And he's like, yeah, I just started bawling. And I was thinking like, man, he was such a good guy. Why'd they have to do him like that? <laughs> 
Yeah. My, one of my low moments was watching what was that second uh, new X-Men movie with um, <laughs> Michael Fassbinder. I remember sobbing at that movie on a plane because, uh, you know, his character is actually kind of he's a good guy. The world is yeah. bad for him, you know? Yeah, I, I've definitely had that with with plane movies. And, and sometimes, you know, I'll even watch a comedy like I, I like tag or something and just find it settling the most poignant portrait of friendship that's ever been made. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, no, I, I mean, an instance is I had occasion to uh, rewatch John Ford's Cheyenne autumn uh, recently. Hmm. His, uh, I think penultimate film, uh, which uh, concerns uh, a group of extremely bedraggled Cheyenne, uh, leaving a reservation in the Oklahoma Territory to go back to uh, Wyoming from whence they came. Uh, and there's a character in it, a Quaker school teacher played by Carol Baker, um, who goes along with the Cheyenne in order to take care of the kids that she's been teaching uh, because of various screw-ups and hot-headedness on the part of uh, the warrior cast on both the side of the uh, Cheyenne and the U.S. Army, rather more so, in fact, um, one of the children is injured. And there's a scene in which Carol Baker is giving a cup of water to this injured little girl and trying to kind of keep the lessons going uh, while they're in flight. And so gives the little girl a sip of water and spells out the word good, G-O-O-D, and the little girl says G-O-O-D, and it just fucking wrecked me, this very little throwaway moment, which absolutely would not have registered on the same mm -hmm. scale at any other time. Mm -hmm. But the combination of uh, sort of sweet mannerly concern, the mm -hmm. combination of contact, uh, all of these you know things coming together in confluencing in this very small moment suddenly just became absolutely devastating to me. And I can pretty much guarantee you in different circumstances, I would have not given the same weight to these few seconds, but there we are. Yeah. Somehow this is, this is also making me um, sort of angry anew at, at like, not the last movie on 35 I saw, but one of the last, which is the age of innocence. Mm. Um, at Metrograph, my experience in the audience there, um, people basically treating it like, uh, yeah, like it was a comedy. Uh, where everything was so over the top with these, this uptight Daniel Day-Lewis uh, character having his book shipped in from London. I mean, just hilarious. Um, and, you know, getting so worked up. Yeah, now I'm even more annoyed that that, that, pub, that crowd audience experience was squandered <laughs> like that See, I, I, I kind of part from you at this point like i like just people being complete bozos in the audience <laughs> 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 it's like i, I yeah I've, I've figured out if i'm like committed to the like theatrical experience this level you know i just got to completely give myself over the fact that i'm subsuming myself in the democratic rabble and that includes <laughs> like a high level of assholery and fine whatever <laughs> i don't really Let get go. too uptight about it anymore yeah i'm like uh 
yeah, I see that. It's the it's d- democracy, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, sure. Take some shots of the screen. Fucking whatever. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're now. There's there's no chance of that now, I suppose, with uh, audiences uh, of one and two. <sighs> yeah. No theatrical uh, tomfoolery. I guess another another. Um, source of solace has been series of one sort or another. Um, and actually just thinking about when we were trying to think about what, what it means for, uh, you know, contemporary cinema to be put on pause in a certain sense. Uh, the thing that actually came to mind is what it's like ellipse use the word ellipse ellipsis. Mm-hmm. It, I guess it's almost like a shortened baseball season, maybe. Uh, sure. How do you mean? I don't know. in, in the sense that, you know, I mean, the same way the sports seasons were kind of sh- shut down. Uh, we kind well, of the, lose- the absence of baseball is absolutely devastating because it is so great. It is so great. Period. Full stop. But also the way that it functions as a marker of time, uh, you know, comes and mm-hmm. goes with the seasons. Of course, the degree to which it functions as an agent of renewal after the like depression and dissipation of the winter seasons. Uh, and you start to fill your lungs a little bit, uh, again. So that's in many ways, even more disconcerting to me, the like absence of baseball. And like a lot of people I've been, uh, been going into the Ken Burns baseball wormhole which is which I do with the greatest of pleasure. Yeah. How how far along are you? Well, here's the th- here's the thing is it's usually I've watched it before though probably 15 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh it's usually at the end of my night and most of my uh, evenings at this point will have to have either me necking several sleeping pills or uh, basically drinking myself into a coma. <laughs> so I time baseball because I know I'm going to be you know, pretty blurry uh, at this time uh, and knowing that I've seen it before. So I just do a lot of watching and re-watching of it. It's a very pleasant uh, kind of milk bath to you know, submerge oneself in. Uh, so I'm going very slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very slow indeed. Uh, yeah. I'm... I'm I'd like I'm viewing and reviewing parts of uh, part three right now. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting thing though. Uh, you know, you're substituting for actual baseball with a movie about it. it I don't know. It's like, I'm curious uh, if people are doing that sort of thing with, you know, other experiences they miss and, and turning to movies in that way. I'm sure. I mean, you uh, just sort of scanning Twitter, you see a lot of like, uh, I'm looking for like a movie with uh, some fields in it. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's like an experiential level to the like requests that are being put out there. It's like less a matter. It's it's like uh, seeking vibes and things of this nature. Yeah, Yeah, I think for Friday night, I'm going to do a movie about clubbing. Sure. (laughs) 
Well, there's yeah, go. Uh, well, the, the uh, yeah, Project I mean, X, not not clubbing <laughs> per se, but the, the great the party greatest going. party party film of all time, 2012's <laughs> Project X. Yeah, we're all basically looking. I think I want to watch something like the montage that Edward G. Robinson sees in Soylent Green. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, I also want to have done to me what's done to Edward G. Robinson <laughs> during that montage. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that he goes to like a proto IMAX movie to get to get <laughs> euthanized. Uh, um. Well, I. <laughs> We're gonna Nick, have come to up wrap with a segue, quick. <laughs> come, come up with a segue. Uh, um, uh, um, so, well, so movies, huh? It's movies. Like, they're like an empathy machine, right? Empathy That's machine. really interesting. The movie Holy morgue. Shit. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, well, we do conveniently, much like that end to Edward G. Robinson's character life, this podcast is now coming to its gradual and peaceful conclusion. <laughs> ah, there you go. Um, so, uh, yeah. Any, broadcast any... is an empathy machine. Broadcast. Yeah, simultaneity. Is this? Should we be doing these live, do you think? Would it be better? Or... I don't know. Yeah, maybe give something. Yeah. Give Um, people something contemporaneous. How long are we supposed to just live with history? uh, Yeah, there's only the now. There's nothing but the now. Actually, I mean, it was was strange. One of the things I did watch, uh, I won't go on at length, but was uh, Lightning Over Braddock. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, Listen to the commentary track, baby. I will. I will. A uh, commentary track by. Uh, I had no that? idea. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it's mostly. It's mostly Tony Booba. Oh really? Nick, just, can you do I'm a live eating. rendition right now? I can't unless Tony wants to come out. <laughs> Maybe we should get Tony on the podcast. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, it was just crazy to hear. I mean, some of his monologues, and uh, you know, voiceover in that film, you could just do a voiceover over now in some ways with uh not not really uh, just current economic inequality and that sort of thing i mean there it was you know for him it's it's based around manufacturing um more but uh, many of the other things it's just this this, yeah the same feeling of the little guy getting squished and um yeah i mean one thing i'm sorry no go ahead and one thing that's interesting there, and I mean, Lightning Over Braddock, this is Booba making a film in his hometown of Braddock, Pennsylvania, known to some perhaps as the setting for George A. Romero's Martin. Um, and I should, you know, predicate this by saying I, I find nothing more detestable than generational solidarity. Um, <laughs> and this is really been Please brought out that would uh, yeah i will because like in the in the um early uh moments of this pandemic when the line was uh you know it's largely affecting only older people with pre-existing conditions so i you know you have to make certain distinctions here uh people are people not merely 
uh, generations. Well, also, and, if this is a global disaster, yeah. right? You know, people put it in such local terms yeah. and it's like, uh, you know, old people everywhere didn't live through all the same things. Yes, and this is precisely where I'm coming from in order to get it back to lightning over Braddock. I also want to just throw in a quick quote from Mothra versus Godzilla, bad people deserve to live too. I do believe that. Now, in Lightning Over Braddock, one of the points that Tony Buba makes is that his generation, and he is like, I believe, a pretty uh, pretty right-on-the-money boomer, uh, of course, for many of that generation, uh, life was and continues to be a walk in the park, but that's also among the American working class, the generation that was hit hardest and deepest by that uh, first really concerted wave of de-industrialization, of layoffs, so on and so forth. And so, I mean, I, I think there's a tendency to look at a certain caste or class of boomers and make them stand in for the whole, uh, well forgetting, uh, as Lightning Over Braddock reminds us, that many members of this generation got shafted as hard as any people in North America ever have been shafted. And that's valuable to be reminded of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, there's an erasure that occurs when you have that kind of generational solidarity because it, it ignores, always ignores some half of that generation. Well, it it also tends to come from upper middle class kids who can think only in terms of their parents and the resentments and hangups that they have about their own upbringing. So then extend that to uh, a generation as a whole while forgetting that uh, there are tens of millions uh, whose experiences do not correspond to those of their parents. So kids, don't joke about COVID-19 as boomer remover. It's in bad taste. <laughs> well, I, I I think that's that's a note of a general. I'd say that's a note of a general understanding that we we can we can end on suitably. Um, well, thank you, thanks, Nick, for bringing joy into our lives. Mm. Mm. <laughs> love to laugh, and I love to laugh with my pals online. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> that's good. Um, do it again we'll, soon. Yes, we'll have, we'll right. we'll do it again soon. Um, thank you both. Signing thank off. Thank you. Thank you to the next. Bye. You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow.
Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.